be reading from John 12:23 to32 today. And Jesus answered them, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Good morning. We all know how... Governments in this world work, don't we? They're run by power, influence, control, domination, numbers, defeat of the opposition. You know, we watch our own Congress, the maneuverings of political parties, the budget talks, sequester, etc. It's a vying for numbers and for power, for control the power to get what they want done. That's the way governments in this world work. You watch nations around the world, it's the same principle. You think of Egypt who had Mubarak, a dictator, for many years, and they finally had a revolution and overthrew him. But what's replaced him? More groups vying for power and control so they can run things their way. In Syria today, we have Assad, who's in a civil war with the rebels. And if he gets thrown out, what will replace him? Who knows? But we know it will be another government who depends on power. All kingdoms, all governments in the world are run this way. That's how they function. But when Jesus came... And died on the cross, he established a whole new kingdom, a whole new government, the kingdom of God. And he showed us that this kingdom runs on very different principles than worldly kingdoms do. It's a very different kind of government. And you and I, when we come to Christ, when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and said, you are my Lord now, then we became citizens of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is now here on earth. It's fully to be realized that Jesus is the second coming, but it's already here. Jesus is Lord. We are following Him. And therefore, as citizens of this new kingdom, we are no longer fully citizens of the kingdoms of this world. We're, we live in the United States, and we are to honor the government. We're clearly told that in Scripture. 
But we're also told that we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're essentially illegal aliens, folks, illegal immigrants. We, we don't really fit here. We don't really belong in this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But if that's so, then how does his kingdom work if it's different from the world around us? How should a good citizen of the kingdom of God live? Well, this is the beginning of Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. We are preparing for Easter. We are looking forward to celebrating the resurrection next Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, as we know, Jesus came and entered into the city in the triumphal entry. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 12 and we'll just touch on the triumphal entry, but then we'll go on to what Jesus says, perhaps on that day, we don't know exactly, but John puts it right after the triumphal entry as a contrast to it. He teaches about how this new kingdom is to run. And as we look at this passage, we'll see how Jesus wants us to function as citizens of the kingdom of God, even while we're still in this world. So pray with me and we'll look together at John chapter 12. Lord, thank you for what you have done in coming and dying and establishing a whole new kingdom the kingdom of God. Thank you that you've called us to be citizens and to live out our citizenship in your kingdom here on earth. But Lord, we admit we we don't always do it well. We don't always know what you want. I pray that your word today would be powerful, would speak to our hearts, and your spirit would help us know what it means to live more fully as citizens of the kingdom of God. We know that nations are clamoring, are muttering, are rebelling against your rule, Lord, but we know that real power is in your hands. And we want to live according to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 12. I want to look first at the triumphal entry, just a couple of verses, starting in verse 12 of John chapter 12, to give us the setting here. It says, The next day... So Palm Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast, they gathered for the Passover feast. They'd come from all over to come and uh, come celebrate the Passover. So it says they gathered when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means, O save, as we've just sung. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They recognize Jesus as a king, right? They call for him to save them. But what are they really looking for? They're excited about Jesus coming, but see, they're still thinking according to worldly governments and kingdoms, right? So when they say, oh, king, come, save us, here's what they're thinking of. They want a king just like all kings. They want Jesus to gather a big army. Get a bunch of weapons. Attack and kill the Romans that are oppressing the people of Israel. Kill the Romans, throw them out, and set up protection all around the nation of Israel so that they could be protected and safe in their country. 
They want Jesus to start a revolution. <laughs> Sounds great. If you're functioning according to worldly kingdoms. But Jesus knew far better than that. He knew that that's not what we needed. <laughs> he knew that we needed the kingdom of God, the real kingdom. And so he goes on to explain to them what this new kingdom is all about. He teaches the crowd that's there as he's preparing to go to his own death how the principles of the kingdom of God work. And it can be summarized in this way, this little phrase, dying to live. The way the kingdom of God works is by dying to live. How does he explain this? In verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this path he's talking about, this new kingdom, is a way for glory. And all of us want glory, right? That's what we're created for. We, we want to be whole, glorious, beautiful, worthy of respect, right, righteous, godly. We want to be what we're created for, yet we know that every one of us is broken is twisted, is tainted, and we long to be restored. And Jesus was facing glory. But notice what he says about that path to glory. He says, this is the hour. And folks, this is how it happens. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you. And he, he says, truly, truly, in the Aramaic, that's amen, 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 amen. He's saying, this is important, get this. This is his last time of talking to the crowds before the cross. And he says, this I want you to remember. This I want you to get. This is important. What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much he said, there's something really important in this illustration I'm giving you about a grain of wheat unless it falls into the ground and dies. I want to give you a, show you a picture and talk a little bit about what Jesus is describing here. He's talking about a common grain of wheat. That's what this is. It's pretty amazing creation of God, really, this grain of wheat. It's made up of three major parts. The outside, the shell, so to speak, is several layers. It's called the bran. That's the protective covering on the outside. And then inside of that, most of it, about 80% of the grain of wheat is made up of what's called the endosperm, which is really the nutrients, the carbohydrates. It's what we grind up to form white flour. And it provides energy for the last part, which is the germ, which is a tiny, small percentage, but it is the embryo, it's the seed, it's what must be germinated to sprout and form the new plant as it grows. And Jesus says something interesting. He says, if, if this grain of wheat remains, if it doesn't die, if it doesn't die, it remains alone. Now that's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? He, he's saying it this way, I think, to kind of surprise us because we tend to think that 
when a grain of wheat begins to grow, that's coming alive. That's not dying, right? I mean, that's what we think of. But he's making a point here, I think, that's very important. When something dies, it stops being what it was before. It's the end of what you've been before. It must become something different. It, it's no longer what it was. I remember my eighth grade science teacher, Mr. Adams, told us a story one time. He had a summer job looking for a job. He, the only one he could find was working with a mortician. So he was in there one of the first days he was there and there was a body on the table. And he was kind of working around it and all of a sudden that body sat up. He was so terrified because that's not what dead bodies do <laughs> that he ran through the screen door, ripped it off its hinges and was running down. The mortician finally caught up to him about two or three blocks down the road and finally he was able to calm him down. You see, when something dies, it's no longer what it was before. That's not what you expect it to do, right? <laughs> it's changed. And Jesus says, here's what has to happen. The old grain has to change. It has to die to what it is and become something different if it is ever to grow. There's, we've been told that they found some grains of wheat like this in an old pharaoh's tomb, 3,000 years old. It had been alone by itself for all that time. didn't produce anything. But scientists looked at it and they said, wow, this is like our grains of wheat. And they planted it and it grew. It grew wheat because it died. It changed. It was, became something different after all that time. So what has to happen? Well, that outer shell, the kernel, the bran, has to get wet, has to begin to decompose, has to break down. And once it breaks down, then the nutrients begin to get germinated and the germ begins to grow. And when it begins to grow, it turns into this. You see, life begins to come forth because the grain of wheat has died, Jesus says. It's softened. It's decomposed. It's become something different. So what is Jesus getting at? He, he says, goes on to explain some. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Verse 25. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, life eternal. He, he's saying, you see, if you, if you love your life in this world, if, if you try to hang on to it, if you make what you've got here, your citizenship here on this world, your top priority, if that's first, then you're hanging on to that. You're, you're like a kernel that never dies and you never produce life. You never get to this place if you love your life in this world, if you live by selfishness and self-protection and keep that hard shell of control around your life, then life, he says, slips through your fingers. You will lose it. You will lose it. 
and you die alone, ultimately. What is our life in this world? Well, let me give you some examples, maybe, that might ring true for some of us. Maybe, maybe your life in this world is your health. You feel like, I've got to preserve my health, and so you work out, you eat all the right things, and that's a good thing, right? That's good stewardship. But when it becomes more important than living for Jesus, you realize you'll eventually lose your health. It happens to all of us. Or if your life in this world is money and that's your security and you feel like you have to hang on to it and, and gee, if the bank account drops or your investments drop, then you're in trouble and you panic and your life is wrapped up in that, then you're loving your life in this world maybe too much because eventually you will lose it anyway. You can't take any of it with you. Maybe if your life in this world is achievement or status, you work hard to be respected and do well in your job, etc. But that's too important to you, then your life in this world, it'll eventually slip through your fingers because you'll eventually lose your job. And I, I just know of too many who eventually have retired even because, but, but their job was their life in this world and now they have nothing. They don't know how to live. They don't even know who they are. If your life in this world is a relationship that you're hanging on to, either of a child or a spouse or a parent, and that's what's most important to you, that's what grips your heart, and that's what you live for, we all lose relationships eventually. You'll lose it. It will slip through your fingers. If your life in this world is your role as a parent, perhaps, you love being a parent, what, what happens then is you can't let go and you can't let your child be who they are and you eventually smother them or you drive them away. Whatever your life in this world is for you, if you love that, Jesus says, if that's most important to you, if you hang on to that above all else, you will end up as a spent, broken, grasping person, a hard shell of a person. David Roper is fond of saying, wise saying, when you get old, you become what you've always been becoming. And if you've been a a person who's loved your life in this world, you you stay hard. You, You stay that single grain of wheat that is unable to connect and experience life like God wants us to in His kingdom. But Jesus says, my kingdom runs this way. If you hate your life in this world, you will keep it to life eternal. (laughs) That's so different than the way our world runs, right? What does he mean by hate? Does he mean to despise? Not, Not really. In fact, biblically and as social scientists tell us, the worst form of hate, the most complete form of hate, is not anger. The worst form of hate is neglect, just to say, yeah, you're not really important to me. But that's what Jesus says, that if we will hate, neglect, consider this world, the things of this world, not so important. Yeah, we have to go to work, and we have to deal with money, and we deal with relationships, and all those things, and we should do our best in our jobs. We're told all that, yes. But, but when those 
are no longer the highest priority and we say, no, I want to live for the kingdom of God and trust you, Jesus, then we begin to experience the life of the new kingdom, he says, eternal life. Jesus' life in us, this new way to live. What does this look like practically? Well, I think he goes on to tell us what it means to, to live for his kingdom, to die to live. He says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Notice how he's describing this new life. It's having a heart of servanthood towards Jesus. It's deciding, I'm not going to serve money or status or this relationship or whatever. My my heart is really gripped by serving Jesus. Lord, I, I want to listen to you and follow what you say. I obey what you say. My life is wrapped up in you, not in myself, not in this world. But my time, my energy, my money, all that I am is yours. It's for your purposes. I, I want to live for you and not love this world. Use me for your kingdom. Now, this is not a call to burn out for Jesus. It's not a call that, oh, then I need to be involved in more churchy stuff. (laughs) That's not what God's saying here. That's not what Jesus wants. But what he wants is, is our heart that says, okay, my life is wrapped up in you. To make obedience first. I, I love watching people in this church. I love being part of this church because there's so many of you that have been wonderful examples of this to me. I get to work in the men's ministry and I get to watch these men who now many of them are moving towards retirement or they are now retired and they're saying, yeah, I'm retired, but now I've got more time to live for the kingdom of God and to serve God more fully. And I see men doing that and I see women doing that with their lives. I see young families saying, yes, we have to deal with kids and diapers and all those things, but Lord, we want our family to be a place where you reign. We want to serve you as a family together. So lead us, Lord. Speak to us. Direct our lives. See, those are beautiful examples of what we are called to. And he says, if you serve me, you follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to keep our eyes on him and go where he goes. Look for where he's working. Lord, how are you involved in my community, in my family, in my church? And and I want to follow you, imitate you. To serve Jesus is to do what he says. To follow Jesus is to do what he does and let him live his life through us. And then I think what this looks like, dying to live, is exemplified by Jesus in verse 27 where he says, Now is my soul troubled. That word is a strong one where Jesus is in anguish. He's struggling with what's coming ahead. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
You see, I think to die to live, to live in this new kingdom, we need to deny our own desires. To set those aside for what Jesus wants. And that's the battle we all have to face because we're human just like Jesus was. And notice how Jesus is battling here. We know he says similar things in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think it's here at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week because this whole week, Holy Week, was so difficult for Jesus. He was struggling. He was saying, Lord, I don't want to face what I have to face. He was in anguish over it. And yet, what he chose to do was to say, Lord, should I say save me? No, no, I'm willing to go through this. I'm going to put you and your purposes first. Glorify your name, Jesus. And that's what we are all called to. That's how the kingdom of God works, to set aside our interests for the kingdom of God. Now, we may be called to do exactly what Jesus did, and that's die, physically, die. Now, we in America don't experience that a whole lot here. But many Christians throughout history have. That's been exactly what they have been called to. And many today, in countries where there's severe persecution, many Christians die for their faith. In fact, that's the way the life of Christ gets released in many ways. But for us, maybe our death is more of a dying to self dying to our own desires, the, the old life, the old shell of our life, letting God soften it and crush that so that what's allowed to come forth is his life instead of ours. You see, the old life has to decompose, <laughs> has to break down, has to rot away, so to speak, so the new life in you and me can burst forth. This is dying to live. This is how the kingdom works. Ray Sedman puts it this way. Here's the great Christian paradox, the unmistakable mark of an authentic gospel. It begins with dying with a cross. If the gospel you hear preached on the radio, the television, or wherever does not begin with the cross, does not begin by telling you that something in you has to die, it's not the true gospel. This is the identifying mark How these words of Jesus cut across the philosophy of life today, every television program, every magazine, every popular song, all present the philosophy, your life is your own, live it the way you please, watch out for number one, do your own thing. But Jesus declares that if you follow that philosophy, you will lose everything. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who dies, experiences eternal life. A couple of examples that I've struggled with in my own life, and I think you maybe can relate. In marriage, we all seem to come into marriage, and I get to do a lot of premarital counseling. I did a wedding yesterday here. I I get to work with couples, and then I do marriage counseling later on. And, you know, we all come into marriage with our picture in our minds of how this is going to work out. (laughs) Our agenda and how this person is going to always make me feel wonderful. It's going to be a tremendous thing and we've 
we have our ideals, our goals, and we think that's going to happen, but we have to eventually die to those things, don't we, if we are going to have a healthy marriage. We have to die to our own goals and agendas and what we think the other person should be. And we have to learn to serve Jesus in our marriages and learn to love sacrificially. Otherwise, we remain hard in our shell, will destroy the marriage, and eventually remain alone. Same in parenting. We have hopes and dreams for our children. We, we want certain things for them. But if we are going to follow Jesus, we need to die to those hopes and dreams and learn to love our child as they are, as God has given them to us. And yes, we direct them and encourage them in the Lord, but we need to learn to delight in who they are, not who we think they should be. Otherwise, we'll either smother them or we will drive them away from us. Well, this can be scary for us, isn't it? I mean, to talk about dying to live, that's, that's terrifying for me because it means letting go of control. It means trusting Jesus with my life and letting him break down those things that I depend on for self-protection and to keep me secure and safe in life. What about my needs? Who will take care of me? Well, Jesus goes on to give some very clear encouragements to us to help us be willing to step out, to help us see what dying to live actually will produce in our lives. Notice when he uses this illustration of the wheat, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about? I want to show you another picture here. See this? stalk of wheat with all the fruitfulness on it comes from one grain of wheat that was willing to die <laughs> so it could bring forth life. It's no longer alone. And, and Jesus is saying, if you're willing to die, trust me with your life. Then you will produce much fruit. The fruitfulness is the influence on other people's lives. It's it's spiritual fruit, it's character, it's Christ-likeness in your life that will have an impact on your world around you. He says, if you're willing to die, you will bear much fruit. This has been true in history. Tertullian, the church historian, he has the famous phrase, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a wonderful statement that is absolutely true in history. The those who have died for their faith have not cut off the church. That's what was intended. We'll destroy the church. We'll kill its leaders. No, it's actually caused more people to live more fully for the gospel, to trust him. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and, and dying to self is the seed of new life for others as well, folks. That's God's design Verse 25, he says, if you, whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, if you're willing to die to live, you, you will begin to experience eternal life. What is that? It's Jesus' life in us. Jesus says that in the Upper Room Discourse. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He defines eternal life as a relationship with him. But we only have the fullness of that relationship as we learn to let the shell of our lives be broken down and begin to die to live, to let him have our life, to serve and follow him and let him be Lord and Savior of our lives. And the end of verse 26, it says, If you will die to live, if you'll serve me, if you'll follow me, the Father will honor him. The glory we all long for will be ours. You see, the Father honors those who walk like Jesus, who die to live as Jesus went to the cross that we might have life as we learn to die to our own desires and our own agendas and we learn to trust him, then he honors that. He blesses us. He values that. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross, the Father was glorified. Verse 31, the world was judged. The world sits under judgment. Because now everything relates to how do you respond to the cross? Do you trust him or do you not? And it says the ruler of this world is cast out because Jesus went to the cross, was willing to die. Satan's power has been defeated for every one of us. We do not have to fear Satan because he was defeated on the cross. In verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Salvation was made available to all men, and Jesus is wooing everybody. Unfortunately, not everybody responds, but salvation was made available to everyone because Jesus was willing to die to live. One more photo I want to show you. You see, God's kingdom is not like any earthly government or kingdom, is it? It runs on entirely different principles. Its power is released when we die to self, when we learn to put Jesus first, when we learn to put ourselves in the Father's hands and say, Father, do with me what you will. Crush me if need be, that I might bear much fruit, that I might experience eternal life, that I might experience well done my faithful servant from the, wor- from the mouth of the Father. The question for every one of us today is are we willing to die to live, to trust the Father, to give our lives to him and let him have his way with us. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to take communion together now, we're reminded of the cross and all that you accomplished because you were willing, though it was hard and your heart was troubled, you were willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Have my life for your purposes. Accomplish your will and all the world was changed forever and the kingdom of God was established. We thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to do that. And now, may we learn to walk in your footsteps, to follow you, to die, to live, that your power might be released in us. So we celebrate communion now. 
as the way to life, as the source of life. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we're reminded that we feed on you and what you have done for us. May we use what we feed on to share life with others, to give our lives away, to die that we might live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.